Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Microphone seems to be working fine. We're on our third string mic. I had to pull it out of the Bethlehem closet. But uh, we had one that's popping from a loose connection. Pastor Scott decided to stomp on the other one last week and broke it. So uh, now we're down to the third string mic. And so far, so good. We'll see if it holds. I want to apologize if... Uh, this shirt is overly familiar. I, I don't keep up with like a, a calendar of what I wear, but I, I've got like three shirts to my name right now and a suitcase. And so I rotate through those three uh, as we're getting prepared to move. And yes, I am eventually going to move. I know this is like the strangest thing. We announced a couple of months ago, you know, that we were leaving. And I don't think everybody really honed in on the timeline, you know, the close friends and those people I see weekly, you know, they kind of understand, okay, he said he's going to leave here. He's going to remain through Pastor Scott's sabbatical, which is wrapping up now. He's got a couple more uh, weeks and then he's back with you. But then at that point, you know, I've got next Sunday and then I'm out of here. But some of you just didn't really focus in on that. So you thought I was leaving and you came up to me, said, oh, we, you know, we love being in church with you and we're going to miss you so much and uh, we wish you the best. And off you went, and a couple weeks go by, and you run into me in town at Trustworthy or wherever. You're like, hey, thought you were gone. <laughs> no, not yet. Well, you know, we wish you the best. We've really enjoyed being with you, and hope you do well at your next church. All right, good deal. A couple weeks go by, and we bump into each other at the supermarket. And you're like, are you still here? <laughs> Man, I wish you'd go. <laughs> And it just gets getting, keeps getting more and more awkward. And now here we are two months later. And now when I go down aisle seven at the supermarket and you turn down aisle seven, you instantly turn around and just leave the store. It's just, you can't face it anymore. I get it. It's been one of these weird, strange things. And normally a pastor gives in his two-week notice and within two weeks he's out of there. Uh, but I'm glad I've got to have the delayed goodbye and it feels like a bunch of different going away parties but I promise you, you get me one more Sunday after today, and then after that, I'm just a tourist here when you see me again. And so we've really enjoyed our time together. We're going to continue where we left off last week, picking up in 1 Peter 3.8. So if you would turn to 1 Peter 3.8, when you find that in your Bibles, go ahead and stand. And I do encourage you, if you're not using a Bible, you can grab one out of the seat in front of you. There should be some down below. Uh, we do throw some of the scripture up here on the screen, but I kind of like to tie my passages in and jump back and forth to show you the different connections so that you understand there is a line of thought that doesn't disappear. Sometimes when you study one section one week and then you take a week off and you come back and you study another section on the next Sunday, you forget that this is just one continuous argument, one continuous teaching. And uh, so by having a Bible in front of you, I think I can help weave that together a little better. Um, so 
Only one person standing, so you guys are really slow. Way to go, Carol. You win the Bible drill. <laughs> Prizes to come. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you choose, or even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it challenges us and shapes us and molds us into the people you want us to be. And this morning, as we wrestle with some of the theological truths that you've put here, we pray that you would apply them to our lives, and Lord, help us to conform to your word, Lord, rather than to carve our own path out and to do things on our own. But Lord, let us submit to you fully and wholly and trusting that you know what's best for us and that you alone can save. And we pray for any lost people that are listening to this message, anyone that's never put their trust in you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This passage begins with the word finally, which like the last couple of sermons that you've heard is a linking word that really is only understood best when you find out what he's talking about. And so if you've not been here or if you've slept since the last sermon, finally is concluding an argument that has been pieced together with the word likewise. You go all the way back into chapter two and he tells the people listening, that they are to suffer for Christ and do good. That's sort of the theme. Do good in suffering as a light to the world. But he says in all of that, one of the ways you do that is by subjecting yourselves to the human government. And though the government may be unjust at times, and though the government may um, be a burden upon you in various ways, their laws and their taxes and such things, he demands that Christians live honorably and peacefully in society as law-abiding citizens, subjecting themselves to the emperor Caesar, or in our case, it would be to our constitution and the governing bodies that oversee our day-to-day -day, uh, laws. And so then he goes on and says, likewise, 
slaves submit to your masters. And so there was a social construct in that day uh, in society where for various reasons one person might be in a um, servant-master relationship. And so he lays out that if you're in that kind of relationship, um, you are going to be a better light to the world if you subject yourselves to your masters. And so Peter says, do that. And then he goes on to women who are married. And he says, wives, likewise. So the word likewise comes again, connecting all these dots together as one cohesive argument, not separate ideas floating you know, out with the space between them, but rather all one thing. And he says, likewise, subject yourself, submit yourself to your husbands. And goes on to talk about the family order. So God is laying out order here, and he says this is the best way by falling into this order and living peacefully and gently and humbly. This is the best way to reach the lost world. And so finally in this is actually just concluding all that he has talked about previously. He says, finally, all of you. He's no longer talking specifically to husbands. He's no longer talking specifically to wives. He's not talking specifically to slaves or to just Roman citizens. He's talking to everyone that is receiving this message. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. The Christian life, Peter is saying here, should culminate in a life of humble submission and lowliness that trusts in God's economy rather than the carving of one's own path. We love to do things on our own terms and we love to make you know, it best for us. And oftentimes our own reason and the, the logic of society is what shapes our to-do list. It shapes how we feel that we would be most effective. But at the end of the day, for Christians, the Word of God has to be the, the greatest authority in our life. It has to be what shapes and pushes us towards certain actions and behaviors. It has to reign supreme. If it doesn't, then we fall prey uh, of the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God laid out an order. And there was an order that he was going to be the king of all kings and that they were going to be image bearers of the king. So little kings and you know, princes, princes and princesses to rule and reign on his behalf on the earth. And they were given their lane that they were to stay in. They are to multiply. They are to fill the earth with God's glory. They are to do all these things and abstain from eating of this one tree. That was the order that he gave. And maybe it didn't make sense to them. Maybe they didn't know why. You know, they didn't have a team of scientists that were there to, you know, extract anything from the fruit, to put it in test tubes, to find out why it was so evil and why it was so bad. But at the end of the day, God gives an order and he says, don't eat of this tree. So even if logic can't understand why, at the end of the day, God's word needed to reign supreme. But unfortunately, it did not. The words of a serpent come in, and they get them to start relying on their own logic, to rely on their own way of thinking, instead of simply trusting God's word. And because of that, they look at it, and they say, well, it doesn't look bad. It looks good. It looks tasty. It looks tastier than this other fruit in the garden. 
uh, because everything looks better that you've never tried, right? Uh, and so they want it, they take it, they eat it, they fall, and all of a sudden we have chaos instead of order. They go from being the servants of God to being the servants of Satan. Now Satan is called the god of this world, the prince of the air. He is the one who all people are now in chains and in bondage to. And so Christians have been redeemed out of that. Jesus Christ comes, he dies on the cross so that people can be brought out of that bondage, put into a different bondage. You're in bondage either way, by the way. You don't get to be your own person. You're either a slave to the world and Satan or you're a slave to God Almighty. And, but slavery in God's house is actually sonship. So you actually get to be a son, not just a, a slave that is at the mercy of your ruthless leader. God is good and God is great to those. He's a father to those who put their trust in him. But we need to trust in him is the point. We need to trust in his economy. When he says that gentleness and lowliness and meekness is the way that we are going to spread the gospel message, not through the wielding of swords and power and might and political prowess, when he tells us that, we need to believe it. Because when we don't, we're just as guilty as people pulling fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the same sin, just in a different package. So trust what God has said here. Subject yourself, submit yourself, be humble, lowly, gentle, and meek. He says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This is a Christian truth that is connected to a previous statement. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, 23, what we studied last week, it gives the example of Jesus. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God. Point being made, and, and as someone who received this letter, they wouldn't have taken a week between you know, the previous chapter and this chapter. They would have read it all together. So when it says, don't repay evil for evil, don't revile, when you're reviled, they would have connected that to the previous statement. that Jesus didn't do that, so why should you, Christian? You're supposed to be like Christ. If when Jesus was hung on the cross, he cried out for forgiveness for those persecuting him, then why should we do any different? We should repay evil for good. If that's not good enough, you think Peter's just off his rocker, then you go to Romans 12, 17, and Paul says the same thing. He says... Don't repay evil with evil. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will do the repaying. That's not your job. When you are treated evil, when you are persecuted for your faith, your sole duty is to bless them. To bless them. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, same thing. You don't return evil for evil. You don't repay wrongdoing with your own personal vengeance. 1 Corinthians 4.12, same thing. If that's not good enough for you, think Paul's off his rocker too, let's go see what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, bless those who curse you. And if you think Peter's off his rocker, and Paul's off his rocker, and Jesus is off his rocker, you're not a Christian. Okay, You've denied all the Bible, more or less, in that statement. Okay, These are men, one of them, more than a man, the God-man, Jesus. But the other two are inspired men who wrote down the scripture in multiple places. This is clear black and white teaching. When you are persecuted, when you are treated evil, you return with good. It says, bless for to this you are called. Peter's already talked about the calling in his book. 
he says that one of your callings is to submit yourself to the government. He says that in that previous passage. He says that we, that's what you were called to. So you, you're trying to find God's calling in life right now. You're like, what did God call me to? Well, he called you to pay your taxes. He called you to go to the speed limit. He you know, called you to obey all the laws of the land. And on top of that, he called you to bless those who persecute you. You're like, ugh, I don't like this calling so much anymore. Well, Jesus was called to go to the cross and die. So you're going to follow. You're going to experience suffering. That's what the book is about. As Christians, you are going to suffer. You're not going to get what you want. You're not going to get what your flesh desires, but rather you're entering into a relationship that puts you second. Puts God first and you second. It really puts you third or fourth or fifth or a millionth because you put other people before yourself as well. And that is how you have an effective ministry, the Bible says. So we haven't got into the sermon yet, by the way. I've got three points I'm about to get to. But before that, I wanted to stop here and pause here because I believe this is pretty important. It's telling us to bless those who persecute us. And I know we read over that and we say, yeah, amen, I'm all for that. But then I don't know that we really wrestle with that enough to put it into practice. And so we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to ask you right now, where you are, in your head to come up with the person that has cursed you the most. Now, the word cursed could refer to several things. It doesn't have to mean vulgarity and you know, bad language, uh, but maybe it does mean that. Maybe they've cursed you a lot. But it's the person that if you were to list out every person on the planet and you were making a list of this is my best friend, second best friend, third best friend, you get down to acquaintances and people you didn't know, and now you get down to the people at the bottom where it's like, okay, these are the people, I won't go to their funeral, um, you know, this is the person I protest their funeral, that kind of thing, you know, and you get to the very bottom of that list, that's the person's name I want in your head right now. And for some of you, there's a three-way tie. That's okay. Keep all three of their names in your head right now. I'll give you a minute. This is hard. I had to do this. Like I, I planned to do this exercise, but I forgot to pick the person. So first service, I had to sit there and think, who is the person? So pick the person or persons. All right. Hope you've got them in your head. We're going to pray for that person right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the example of Jesus Christ who did not repay evil for evil, but rather when evil men hung him on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He showed mercy. He showed compassion even to those who would take his life. So, Lord, we know that most of our grievances against other people are not as solid they're not as robust uh, they're pretty petty but lord even for those who have real grievances that are weighty uh, regardless of what has caused this division what has caused this person to be in our head right now we pray lord that you would bless that person or those people lord we pray that you would do good for them today Lord, that you would pour into their life. And if they're a Christian, Lord, we pray that you would just, that you would provide them with such clarity in what the gospel teaches that there would be reconciliation between them and the person praying for them right now. Lord, we pray that if the person is not a believer, that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin and Lord, that they would repent and be saved and that we would rejoice in that salvation, not 
mimic Jonah who sits on a mountain and is sore displeased with the fact that people would actually cry out to you in repentance and turn from their ways. Lord, but let us, and not let us be like the other brother in the story, the prodigal son, who is mad that the father goes out and meets the person and brings them in and prepares a feast for them, Lord. But let us, let us glory in their salvation and their blessing this morning. Lord, I pray that we would do the best that we can to not just pray for them in our heads, but Lord, show a blessing in our actions. If there's something we can do to bless that person, while we're here, I pray that we would do so. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, let's get into the sermon, shall we? The first point this morning is submission and suffering wins an audience with God. Submission and suffering wins an audience with God. Let's pick up where we left off reading. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here Peter is saying that if you love life, you want to see good days ahead, you need to do the right thing. And the right thing needs to be interpreted in the context of which this passage sits. And we've already been talking about this that this morning. The context is them suffering and not repaying evil for evil. The context is them subjecting themselves in God's order. The context is them being humble and lowly and having sympathy and showing brotherly love and having a tender heart. It's none of this calloused, I'm tough, I'm going to be above you, I'm going to carve my own way, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. That's not the mentality that he's talking about. That's the evil. The good is humble dependence upon God and entrusting yourself to him to take care of all the mess around you. You can't fix this world. All you can do is trust in God and honor God with your life and obey him fully. And then he will do his part. Whatever he deems best, whatever he wants to do, he'll do. And he'll use you. You get to choose whether you participate in it or not. God's going to do what God's going to do. He can use rocks. He can use stones. But he prefers to use people who will submit themselves to him. So this is your opportunity to participate in that this morning. So that's the good that he will do. If you do good, it says that his eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Now, in my Bible, this little section, beginning in verse 10 down through verse 12, looks a little different. It's the, the margins have been squeezed in a little bit, and your Bible may have it that way, it may not. But what that means is we've broken into song. We've broken into poetry. We've went from a, an epistle, a hortatory piece of literature that just kind of goes through and gives teaching, and now he's broken out into a jig. You know, I, like I'm preaching, I could start singing to you right now if I wanted to. I don't want to. I put that behind me. You know, the guitar's still on the stage. I could, but I'm not going to. Peter is singing his favorite song right now. He's, he's been writing and all of a sudden. He's like, that reminds me of this tune. I like. And he's, he's quoting his favorite radio station, by the way, Psalm. Uh, Psalm 34. That's his favorite. And so he goes to Psalm 34 and he pulls from that chapter. And that chapter is about God being with his people in the midst of suffering. 
about God being with his people as they subject themselves to him and they put him first. And it's saying those who put me first, God says, he will lend his ear to them. In fact, I'm going to read you a, a portion of this. It says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And by the way, Peter's already quoted from this same chapter in chapter 2. There's a different part of the chapter. So he's really got this psalm in mind as he pins this epistle. So you might want to, for your homework tonight, go back and read Psalm 34 through a few times. And maybe that'll just kind of prepare you to fully understand where Peter's coming from. He's drawing off of previous written scripture, previous inspiration. But the main point here is that if you want an audience with God, and as a Christian, that should be the main person that you're trying to impress. You're not trying to impress your neighbor. You're not trying to impress your spouse. You're not trying to impress your boss. You're not trying to impress the emperor. What you're trying to do is to be righteous before God because his eyes are upon you. He's looking. He's watching. But if you don't submit yourself to him, if you don't get into God's order, if you do not embrace humility and gentleness, what it says is he turns from you. He does not hear your cry. And if you were here last week, this is kind of repeating what's already been said. If you go back uh, to the previous section in uh, verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 3, or sorry, not, yeah, verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He was saying there that wives need to submit to their husbands. Husbands need to love and respect and be a godly leader in the home. And if that relationship's broken, if neither party has submitted to the authority of God here, then God doesn't hear their prayers. Their prayers are hindered. Now he's applying that same principle to everybody. It's not just to the husband and wife relationship. They're not the only people who are in danger of cutting off the communication line to God, but rather all Christians, if they do not subject themselves to God, if they do not humble themselves before him, if they do not give themselves to his defined order of things, then he doesn't hear your prayer. You've cut off communication because you've said in your heart by throwing off his order that his way's not good enough. That's what Adam and Eve did. They said, your way's not good enough. You said don't eat it of the tree. The serpent said it's good. We're taking his path. And as soon as that happened, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. That was their communication spot. That's where they walked with God in the garden. They're not doing that anymore. They chose to listen to another. They were unfaithful. And when we do not fall into God's clearly defined order here, when we don't subject ourselves to the one that God said to subject ourselves to, we've broken our communication with God, and he turns from us. We play to an audience of one. We play to an audience of one. Every day you should wake up and ask yourself, how can I honor God today? David did this. You know, David could have taken things into his own hands. He could have killed Saul and taken the kingdom. God told him he was going to have a kingdom. 
David had a chance to kill Saul in a cave. David had a chance to kill Saul down in a camp one night. He had opportunities to kill Saul, but he did not take them because he said, I'm going to trust God on this one. If he wants me as king, he'll make me king. Same thing applies here with these people that you're supposed to submit to. Trust God. Say, God, if you want me to have this freedom, I'll have this freedom. God, if you want me to live in persecution, I'll live in persecution. This is yours. I'm going to trust you in this, but I have one responsibility, and that's to please you. David, when he did sin, he wrote a psalm, Psalm 51, and he's talking about his you know, sin against um, Uriah the Hittite and how he took his wife Bathsheba and all the things that transpire in that event. You can go back and read it. But in that psalm, he says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. And you're thinking, huh, really? You killed a guy and you took his wife before you killed him and pregnated her. Feels like you sinned against a lot of people here, David. But David realized, he, he knew he sinned against those people. But in his mind, he had one set of eyes that were supreme above all else, and that was the eyes of God. And he knew that he had come to grips with the fact that he had indeed sinned against God, and so he was crying out in repentance. The same thing we should do. If we do not follow God's clearly delineated order, and we do not humble ourselves and approach life with gentleness, then we have fallen into sin, and we need to cry out to God saying, God, against you and you alone have we sinned here. Hear our prayer because we know that we have cut ourselves off from the communication line that we have with you. So that's how we gain an audience with God is through submission and suffering. The next thing, submission and suffering wins an opportunity with man. An audience with God, but an opportunity with man. We read through this already, but looking at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying, subject yourselves to the emperor. Subject yourselves because in doing that, you're not going to be persecuted as much. You know, if you go out and you're a rebel, yeah, you're going to be persecuted. So that's why he says, there's no harm to you if you're zealous for what is good. But he says, even if you do, even if like the government's so bad, so corrupt, that when you actually try to do what's godly, they're persecuting you because of it, which has happened. You know, there was a time in history where the Roman government said, no Christian weddings. No Christian weddings. If you conduct a Christian wedding, you will be killed. So St. Valentine said, I'm a Christian minister. I'm going to conduct Christian weddings. That's what I've been called to do. So he conducted a Christian wedding. He got his head cut off. There was red everywhere. That's why we have hearts that are red on Valentine's Day, and we celebrate that with little cards and stuff. I don't think we get the whole picture when we do that. But the fact is, there comes a point where you can't obey Caesar. But when you can, you do it. And most of the time, you're going to be rewarded for the good. And when your Christian conviction doesn't align with the government, you have to honor God first, then even if you suffer under those circumstances, you're honoring Christ, and it's going to result in an opportunity for man because it says here, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
be ready to give an answer. Now, the word here in the Greek is apologia, where we get our word apologetics. And for those of you, there may be people in the room right now that love the discipline of apologetics. And I could probably ask you to raise your hand. We may have some hands go up. They love it. If some of you are sitting here like, I don't know what apologetics is. What is that, saying I'm sorry all day? No. Apologetics is the giving of a defense for the faith. And so the discipline that you might go study, if you want to go get a book on apologetics, I believe there's an apologetic Christian Bible out right now, if you want to get one of those. But they're in those works, they give answers to some of the scrutiny that is put upon the Christian faith. So perhaps you will get a book on apologetics, and it will say, um, why is there suffering in the world if God is good and he created it? Good question. Apologists have provided answers for that question for a long time. So go get a book on apologetics if you want the answer to that. Some people are less concerned with truth and more just trying to uh, you know, get you to trip up on your theology. And they'll say, can God make square circles? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Okay, kind of silly questions, but maybe you actually are curious to get the answer to that. And that's where an apologist would provide good material on answering such questions. So anytime there's a question that's thrown at the church, like, okay, well, you think your religion's right? Well, answer me this. And apologists give an answer. They provide a defense for the faith. However, in the context here, we're not talking about these strange questions when we're talking about giving a defense for the faith. We're talking about something more organic and natural that arises when onlooking humans observe that Christians act differently when they're persecuted. So they're subjecting themselves to the emperor, they're subjecting themselves to masters, they're subjecting themselves to their husbands, they're living humbly and lowly, and when they are treated with evil and people revile the Christian church, they respond with gentleness and respect. And when that happens, it causes the world to say, why? Why are you honoring your husband? He's a jerk. Why are you obeying your master? You know, he's made you a slave. Why are you listening to the emperor on this one? He said you couldn't keep that fish that was hooked in the tail. Why are you doing this? And when they ask the question, and they will, they will be ready to give an answer for the faith that's in you. I mean, it, it really happens. Put a salmon back in the water that was hooked in the gill, and the person next to you is going to say, why did you do that? If I had known you were going to do that, you could have given it to me. They're going to ask. And all of a sudden, you have a clear opportunity to share your faith. Something as simple as that. My kids all the time tell me to pass in non-passing zones and to, you know, ram the car in front of me and go faster and all that kind of stuff, okay? Why don't you do that, Dad? Why are you only going seven over the speed limit instead of 70? <laughs> because of how good of a Christian I am. Uh, no, it, but get what I'm saying. When you start subjecting yourselves in certain ways, people are going to ask questions. The people that are close to you, that see you walk your Christian life, and see you aligning your life in God's ordered plan, 
they're going to ask, and you're going to get an opportunity to be an apologist. And so you get an opportunity to share your faith with the outside world, and it's kind of like the slow pitch opportunity. You don't have to wiggle your way in there and come up with some creative way to steer the dialogue towards the faith when you were actually talking about baseball. No, you get them asking you point blank, why are you a Christian? And you get an opportunity. Or why do you do this? Because, because I am a Christian. You get that opportunity when you live gentle and lowly and humbly before humans. The final point we're getting to, submission and suffering wins over the forces of death and evil. I'm going to spend a brief amount of time giving you the overall point here and hitting the highlights, and then we're going to dive into the crazy. <laughs> In the past few weeks, I've preached the uh, material that is offensive. Today, I'll be preaching the material that is crazy. But before we get to crazy, I'm going to give you the highlights so that you can walk away with the points. These are the things that you can take to the bank you can trust. The crazy stuff, I'm going to give you interpretations and different views on it, and then do with it what you will. But it doesn't change the point of Peter's message. So this isn't something that's going to completely rock your theology when we get into the nitty-gritty. But if you're like me, I'm the kind of guy that asks why. I'm the kind of guy that wants to know what did he mean there. And so if you're like that and you want to follow me, that's what we'll be doing. If not, then after I give you this overview of the main point, you can go to sleep and check out or whatever. But diving in, it says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then I want you to just skip down to the final uh, verse here. It says, Who has gone into heaven... And is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The whole point here is that you, Christian, need to be lowly and submit yourself to God and submit yourself to these authorities. You need to suffer for righteousness' sake, not returning evil for evil, but when you're persecuted, you just bless. Just keep blessing and blessing and blessing and praying and doing good. Because the world is watching and you're going to get an opportunity to give an answer. And it says, don't believe me? The proof is in the pudding. Look at Jesus. Jesus came as God and submitted himself to a human body. He submitted himself to a human government. He submitted himself to a human family under his parents. And he obeyed them and honored them. He, he did everything that the Bible is asking you to do. He suffered at the hands of men. He even was put on the cross and died on the cross for our sins. He, he did it all. He suffered. So you can't say that you don't have a good, clear example to follow here. But at the end of it all, Jesus is exalted above every name. He's exalted above demons. He's exalted above angels. He's exalted above kings. He's exalted above rulers, principalities, powers. He's exalted above it all. And so will you be if you follow him. You get to be exalted in the end like Jesus. You get to sit in judgment and judge angels, the Bible tells us. You get that opportunity, Christian, but that's later. You don't get to be exalted now. You get to be exalted then if you will follow Jesus in his earthly pattern. And his earthly pattern was lowly. His earthly pattern was suffering. His earthly practices were washing his disciples' feet. That's the kind of life you have to live now if you want the kind of life that Jesus lives in eternity. 
If you want to be exalted, you must make yourself low. But the one who exalts himself now will be brought down in the end. It's a choice that you have to make today. That's the point. The point is you will have victory over all through suffering and submission. That's why the Bible calls us to lowly living. Ready for crazy? All right, that was your point. Let's get into some deeper theology. In this passage, it says that Jesus, after being put to death in the flesh, meaning his body, he was raised through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, raised Jesus from the grave, put life back into a dead corpse, and so now he rules and reigns forever, living on forever and ever in a glorified body, just like you and I one day will have the opportunity as believers to be in a glorified body. The Spirit will raise us. We're just following Jesus from beginning to end. Whatever he does, we do. But then it says that spirit that raised him from the dead is the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. All right, Peter, what's going on here? You're talking to a group of people that are living 100 or so years, 50 to 100 years after Jesus. And you're talking about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that took place like 50 years past. But then you're jumping back thousands of years to Noah and you're tying all this together like it's something that Jesus went and did. What's happening here? Who are the spirits in prison? Who did Jesus go and proclaim to? And these are some difficult items on the table right now. This is, this is not easy. In fact, Martin Luther, who was the father of the Protestant Reformation. He's the reason we're sitting in a Baptist church right now instead of a Catholic church. Um, and he was a very sharp guy. He had a lot to say on almost every passage of the Bible. He wrote commentaries. He wrote books. He preached uh, just continuously and was able to pull out doctrines that had been forgotten for hundreds of years and shape them and put them into thought so that we could, we could feast on them today. But when he came to this passage, he says this, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So if he had that mentality on this passage, I think we would do well to not leave here overly confident in our interpretation. And let me push a little further and say, whatever you do, do not build an entire doctrine on a passage like this, as some do. And I'll share some of that with you in just a minute. But you have scripture aplenty to build doctrine on, like the several verses I gave you earlier that said, don't repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. There's enough clear black and white scripture that we can make a doctrine out of that. But when we're talking about Jesus going, preaching to spirits in prison and all that, uh, I've got some verses I'm going to share with you, and I believe this to be true, but I, I come to you humbly knowing that I could be wrong on this, but it doesn't change the major point, which is good. We don't, we're not shaping an entire doctrine over these things. So let me give you a few ways that this has been interpreted in the past. One of the first ways that it was interpreted is that this is talking about how the spirit that raised Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, went in the days of Noah, so we're going back a few thousand years, the same spirit was in Noah as he was preaching. 
And so he was building an ark and he was telling everybody, hey, the flood's coming, the flood's coming. There's sin in the world. We need to get right with God. If you don't get right with God, we're going to all die. Uh, the only way to salvation is get in the ark. God said this was going to save us. And so he's preaching and proclaiming in the same spirit that Jesus was. And so when it says the spirits that are in prison, it, what it means is that he preached to these people thousands of years ago who perished in the flood, and now their spirits are in prison today. So he's referring to spirits today who were preached to long ago, but who perished in the flood. That's one interpretation of this passage. I don't like that interpretation uh, for various reasons. Uh, for one, the word spirits is never really used for human souls, even deceased human souls that are not in bodily form. Uh, we see the word souls, but spirits typically refers to angels. Anytime that it's used in the New Testament, it's usually a reference to angels if it's in the plural. Now, if we say spirit, like we might say the spirit of a man, but we wouldn't say spirits referring to various people at once. That just doesn't happen. So if that is a correct interpretation, it's breaking the traditional use of the word and it's using it in a way that's not common. Another thing is it talks about the spirits in prison. And while prison is used in the Bible a lot to describe a holding cell for living humans, there's never anywhere else where the word prison would be used to describe a place for deceased human souls. You know, even though their soul may go on to a place of torment and a place of punishment if they have rejected God and his way, never is that referred to as prison. Once again, that's not true about angels, though. So angels are referred to as, well, because Satan is an angel, by the way, and in Revelation 20, verse 7, it refers to Satan being held in prison during the millennial reign. And so we do have some precedent there for seeing that there are angels, demons, fallen angels who are being reserved in a place of captivity called prison. Before I get to what I believe is the best interpretation of this, I'll give you one more bad interpretation. And there are some who have embraced that Jesus descended into Hades when he died. And so between his death and resurrection for three days or whatnot, he went and preached to people, sharing the gospel with them and giving them an opportunity to believe. Even though they had died and they had gone to hell, now they get an opportunity to hear the gospel and believe and be taken out and to go to heaven. I had a friend sit down with me one time and he said that that was his belief on it. And it was very awkward. It was an awkward meeting <laughs> um, because I, I was like, how in the world? First off, you can't believe. Believe, the word believe is a word of faith. And faith is what salvation hinges upon is our, our faith in God, our faith in something that we can't see. But when you've been sitting in the lake of fire for a few years and then this glowing figure shows up and starts saying, I'm the son of God, I'll get you out of here. <laughs> Where is faith in that? Of course you believe. You've got no <laughs> real opportunity to not believe at that point. It's like God's forcing the tree of life down your throat. Beyond that, that's just you know logic, but beyond that, there is no other scripture anywhere that would indicate. In fact, every scripture runs contrary to that. It tells us that it's, you know, the, the death that we experience 
without God is eternal. We see everlasting torment, everlasting fire. It says where the, the worm dieth not. You know, just it, all these references to hell are eternal references. Beyond that, we have a story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man goes down into torment, and Lazarus goes into what's called Abraham's bosom. And in that state, the rich man is begging for just a drop of water to be put on his tongue. He's even begging for a witness to go tell his brothers about the terrible place. And in both cases, he is declined. It's like, well, if the living don't get a witness, why would the dead? And so on and on and on it goes. There are no scriptures that would back this up. But this friend of mine built an entire theology out of one very obscure passage. The Bible tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. We have no reason to believe that you get an opportunity to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ following this life. That's why there's such urgency in the New Testament to get the gospel out there. That's why there's urgency for you guys and me to live lowly and humble and submit. If everybody's going to get another chance anyways, who cares? Live your life the way you want to. Because it doesn't matter. In fact, don't even be a Christian now. Because you can just get out of the lake of fire in a few millennia when Jesus comes. But one more point is it says that Jesus went and did this. It doesn't say, even in this passage, that that would be a continuous opportunity. Even if he did go down and preach to them, it doesn't mean that he's ever going back to hell again to preach. So maybe it worked out for those people, but not for you. You see, there's a lot of problems with that interpretation. So let's get to the final one. We'll wrap this thing up because I know our time is short now. The modern consensus is that when Jesus died on the cross, he went in the spirit and proclaimed, in the spirit that resurrected his body, he proclaimed victory over, over all death, over all evil, in the presence of a group of fallen angels that are reserved in a place called prison. Just as Satan will one day be bound in that place called prison, where he's held, there is biblical teaching that there was a group of angels, a group of demons that are now reserved in a place called prison. Not all demons. There are demons out on the prowl right now. The Bible says Satan right now is walking back and forth on the earth seeking whom he may devour. Okay, Satan is real and he's out and he's free. Demons are real. They're out and they're free. But there is a group of demons who are not out and free. They are bound. It says in the book of Jude, if you turn to it, just a few books to your right. Get past 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, right before Revelation. It's only one chapter, it's easy to miss. It says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Jude says, there was a group of angels that left their authority. God had, even though they had fallen, God did not remove demons from the world. He let them continue to stay for His purpose. He's working all this out. And there was a group of demons. He had designated them as, this is your domain. And they abandoned their post. They did what they were not supposed to do. They did what was unnatural for them. And it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah fell into sexual immorality, it says, likewise. That's, that's what the angels did. So this is some weird stuff here. Uh, a lot of this you can find even more evidence for in the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch gives a similar explanation. Even though that's not a part of your Bible, it's like a, an extra biblical writing, but it still shows that most Jews in this day believe this. And Jude quotes from the book of Enoch saying, yeah, that's true. First Peter's quoting from the book of Enoch saying, yes, this is true. What I'm about to tell you is true. And if you go back to Genesis, it says that there was a day where the sons of God, and the word sons of God usually is a reference to angels. The sons of God looked at the daughters of men and saw that they were fair, and they took them. They procreate with them, and out of that relationship comes the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are giants in the land. And it's that evil that brings on the flood, which is why First Peter goes directly out of this conversation about this prison preaching and goes into Noah and his flood. Just as in the days of Noah, it got evil because of this. And so the point is that there was a group of angels that fell from heaven who are now classified as demons. And then there's a subgroup of demons that because of this terrible thing they did are now reserved in prison. They don't even get to prowl around and tempt you, thank God. They somehow procreated with humans. I know there's probably a lot of questions right now. Like, how is that possible? I, I, I don't know the anatomy of demons. I know that one demon named Satan took the shape of a serpent. So I guess they can shapeshift. I know demons can take possession of people. So maybe it was through human, you know, demonic possession that these things occur. I don't know. We could talk about all that. We don't have time to really flesh this out. But the fact is, there is a group of angels that did something terrible, and it looks like, based on all the evidence, it has to do with human relationships and the giants being born out of this ungodliness. And it is through that that they were put in prison. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, he rose again in the Spirit, and through the Spirit, he went to the prison and not preached the gospel for them to be saved, but the word can mean proclaimed victory. He proclaimed victory over them, saying, Nanny, nanny, poo poo, you thought you could leave your domain. You thought you could undo my plan for humanity. You thought you could turn it all upside down and destroy it all so that Satan would be the victorious king forever. But I did it. It is finished. It is done. Now, any who put their faith and trust in me will never come and be in this terrible place that you are stuck in for eternity. And he zoomed out of there and led a host of captivities captive. And he has taken every human figure that's put their trust in Jesus Christ into heaven where they will rule and reign with Jesus Christ forevermore as they follow his humble example on earth. Now, I may have left you with more questions than answers on all of that, and that's okay. But the points that are solid 
is that you and I need to live humbly because Jesus lived humbly. You and I need to suffer well because Jesus suffered well. We need to submit where Jesus submitted, and we know that one day we will have the victory because Jesus has the victory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time and your word. We know it's deep, too deep for human comprehension at time, uh, times, but Lord, as we continue to dig into it and to study it, I pray that you would just enrich us with knowledge and truth, and Lord, that you would continue to give us what we need to spiritually grow and to please and honor you. Forgive us where we fail you today, and Lord, we pray for anyone here needing to make a decision to follow you closely, that today would be the day of salvation, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Let's sing, respond to the message.